out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the Scottish bass band. It is Whiteout, who were around in the very early 90s. Actually, for most of the 90s, in fact and were signed to various record labels, including Silvertone, and also toured with Oasis, as well as many other bands. Anyway, this is the interview I did with Eric Lindsay, guitarist. So, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject. That was the early formative years. Eric, tell us about your musical awakening. Tell us now. Over to you. The first thing I can really remember was um, sitting on a Sunday night in the kitchen getting my hair cut by my mum. She gave me the the style I always had, which was the, the bowl cut, which yes. I, I went away from for a few years and then I came back to it and in the white out days. So she was sitting cutting my hair and I was watching uh, Blondie on TV. It was my sister who was 10 years older than me, so she was, uh, she was into much the same kind of thing as yourself and the glam rock and David Bowie and everything, but she would, um, she was watching, I don't know which programme it was, but it was Blondie on TV and I was quite taken at the age of seven, I think I was, six or seven by Debbie Harry at that point. So that's that's the first time I can remember really. Which is fantastic. Was that about 78 then when she just released? 77, 78, yeah. So Denis, Denis. Yeah, I was thinking Denis, Denis, yeah. Yes, I did. That was my third single. My second one was... Okay, it was Rod Stewart sailing, which I loved. And um, yeah, then it was Blondie because I saw the same moment on on top of the pops and just went, oh my God, that's just amazing. So um, the Nina D. And I think the B side had something like Kung Fu fighting and contacting Red Square, which again, you know, I played because you did in those days. So um, yes, huge influence. Blondie was just yeah. everything. I think my first seven inch was. Uh... I actually went to John Menzies, which was the main place to buy records at that point in Greenock, where I'm from, to buy Brass and Pocket. So I guess that would have been kind of 82, 83 maybe? No, I think it was 89. I don't think so, because I couldn't get Brass and Pocket, so I bought instead Kids in America by Kim Wilde. Crikey. Which my daughter last year did in a, a school show. Couldn't have been last year, more school shows locked down the year before. Um, yeah, not quite as cool as Brass in Pocket or Denis Denis, but um, it's quite a great song. See, Brass in Pocket, it was 79 it came out, because I was still... 79, right, 79. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. What did I, I say? I you for it. You said 89, which... 89, oh, me. sorry. 79, <laughs> right, yeah? Yeah, 79, yeah. Had, so had I, been I, eight? Yeah, I was 16. There you go. It, it was a kind of an influential moment. Again, it was kind of one of those kind of classics, wasn't it, really, that, that you had. And also, I must admit, we all loved Kim Wilde as well, because Kids in America was just kind of, I suppose it was kind of pop perfection, really. You kind of instantly wow. went, yeah, that's it. We love it. So um, there you go. So you were, yeah, so that was kind of your formative period, actually, wasn't it? So you, were, you said your second single was, I should have been paying attention. Your second uh, single... Oh, Kids in America. No, your first single. Kids in America Kids. was my first single because I couldn't get Brass in Pocket. Yes. So were you from a, were your parents quite a musical, was it kind of a musical house or was it just mostly your sister who was kind of dictating, not dictating, but No, no, my, my, my brother was a big uh, music fan as well. He had the kind of small but eclectic taste. Uh, 
ranging from he had the red and the blue Beatles albums, which we we, we listened to a lot, and he also had "Part uh, Out of Hell" by Meatloaf, and that was that was really popular. And God, so, that is such a classic. Um, that was about seventy seven, wasn't it? "Part Out of Hell." Yeah, incredible and, songs. Uh, my dad was a big country and western fan. Brilliant. Uh, he kinda, he and I learned guitar together when I was eight. Uh, in the local church we went along to lessons and, and I kind of gave it up after learning the three basic chords I think and my dad kept at it so he used to at family gatherings he would get that out and play Peggy Sue or Johnny Cash songs and I can also remember actually being maybe about three or four and now maybe this is actually my real musical formative moment and listening to um, Ring of Fire while looking at the record cover and the record cover was a kind of it must have been a 60s or 70s reprint and it had a picture of Johnny Cash but it had these little circles coming out of it, a kind of graphic thing and I was, yes. while, while I was listening to that, I was being sucked, I'm so it was quite a, yeah, I still remember that moment, I must have been only four, maximum. Uh, it was, so quite, it was, was quite an epic song actually, when, you know, I can remember because my dad was kind of into country and western and I suppose we used to play radio too because the record player had, wasn't, it didn't come into the bungalow in the early 70s when you know, they bought a record player after, you know, I think because from a working class background, you know, grew up in the countryside. I think when my parents got married in the 50s, they sort of sold everything because you never borrowed money. And so that meant his, you know, record player and his Elvis Presley, Presley records also went. And then suddenly when they got a bit more money, they'd always do another little thing in the, on the bungalow and all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, so there was kind of country Western, but my, my, my older brother, who was seven years older, he was into prog rock. So I got into that bizarre world of prog rock, but he also yeah. had Sergeant Pepper and he had um, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which I really was obsessed with when I was very young. So um, that was a big moment actually. Mm -hmm. So for you then, the, the 80s from sort of 1980, you were like 10, I suppose, weren't you? From Yeah until you're right through the 80s. So were you, were, you, were you sort of um, at that stage ever sort of thinking, oh, I might, might sort of progress into a band? I just wondered if you were obsessed with music, like I suppose like I was, you know, at that time. I must say I wasn't. It was probably, um, I mean, it was always there in the background, obviously, and popular culture. I went through phases of, uh, I was a mod at one point, during the mod revival, I might have been a slight nutty boy when it was madness was a thing. Yes. I was into heavy metal with the uh, sleeveless denim jacket with the bands that I got my mum to stitch on the back. So maybe that crossed over with you a little bit. Russian stuff, Rush, and uh, that was my main, a bit of ACDC. Uh, and then I got into football, and it was only really when I was probably 16 and I started working that, uh, so that would have been an... 88 that was when I really started to buy music and I became a really big Smiths fan at that point so I wouldn't say I was obsessed through my, my early teens or anything that was in that like kind of 80, 88 so I just missed having the Smiths being able to go and see them live but I kind of got into the whole fanzine yes. and record collector uh, record fairs and everything and buying all the bootlegs and everything I could get my hands on at that point that is nice. So you're not a sort of, that wasn't a mining town, that was more of a fishing town you were from. A shipbuilding town, you know, so it was so massively, <laughs> yeah, well, similarly maritime in nature, but uh, obviously they, in the 60s, it was 
I think the biggest town in Scotland, but after that uh, and after the shenanigans of the 70s and the 80s, uh, the shipyards disappeared and a lot of the population did as well. So we went from being the biggest town in Scotland to the most deprived pretty quickly. Um, yeah. Yes. So was there but, quite a lot of unemployment during the 80s? During Massive, massive unemployment, yeah. And, and, uh, and deprivation and... Despair, I think, in a lot. I mean, it's a it's a kind of a an interesting town because it has the areas which uh, made a lot of money from shipbuilding and from from that era and and from also from trade uh, because there was a lot of ships came into Greenock because they couldn't make it up the Clyde to Glasgow. Right, it was the last port, so there's a lot of kind of remnants of trade with the West Indies and uh, South America and sugar and. There was there was a lot of sugar refinery and distillery and and I'll, so there was a lot of money and in parts of the town you can see that money uh, from the Victorian uh, time. So there's, there's there's mansions and there's there's a beautiful part of you know called the West End, which like most West Ends of industrial towns is really nice. But the East End where I was from was not really like that, and that's the money just obviously disappeared from that area. Yeah. So what is kind of interesting because being from this area, Norwich, we didn't, we don't have those kind of grand buildings from that Victorian, mm. you know, time that, that, you know, you've seen other cities like Manchester, Liverpool, even Preston, you know, like that, those mm. kind of like, God, this is much bigger than what we've got. It's all a bit, it was kind of sheep, you know, wool, sheep, textiles. I mean, I suppose it had money, but it didn't have that kind of, wow, this must have had a lot of status in the old yeah. days. We had sort of mansions and, you know, those national parks and you know like big estates with landowners i suppose but not sort of industrial cities that, that have that kind of grandeur and intimidation i always feel intimidated in cities so um yes it's interesting isn't it so yes so was it because because with a lot of the bands that i've done especially the 80s indies ba indie bands during that kind of 80s you know thatcher got in in 79 and the early 80s there was a huge amount of unemployment and young people did feel like there was just no future. So there was kind of like, you know, unemployment benefit and job seekers allowance. So a lot of the, you know, people who went into bands, you know, had that one or two years just kind of bumming about as you do before sort of forming a band and then things changed again. Did, was there that sense with you that, you know, it was all going to be a bit grim and there was no kind of much to look forward to? Well, I actually left school at the end of this of fifth year, which I guess in England would be, well, I was, I was 16 when I left uh, and I went to work in the electronics industry, which had kind of taken over in, in Greenock at that point from shipbuilding. So it did employ a lot of people. Um, and I worked for National Semiconductor. There was also IBM had a massive plant. So the, there was that kind of aspect at that point, but that was, that was rapidly disappearing as well. And the other guys in the band, uh, I think I was the only one who had a job. The rest of them weren't quite um, in the same situation, but from our surroundings, you would say we're not. Uh, you weren't hopeful of a great future at oh. that point at home, and the the lure of being in a band and, and just as soon as we started getting out and uh, travelling and seeing a bit of the world, uh, you really did think, yeah, there's there's a lot more out here that for us to see and to do, yeah. Yes, because recently I was watching this documentary about three Scottish football managers, Jock Steen, probably Alex Ferguson and Shankly, 
I remember Shankly saying, you know, you had two choices. You either worked down the pits or you played football. He said it in a much better accent than I do. Um, but did you have that sense of, you know, so there was basically desperation. You weren't going to, you know, be a bit flaky at all, were you really? <laughs> that sort of career option. Did, was there a sense of that when you were in the band of thinking, let's just really make this work because we haven't got plan B? I, I think that's the way we looked at it. In retrospect, I'm not entirely sure that was true. I think it was perhaps a bit of a uh, a creation to justify it to ourselves. You know that we were this gang, and we were going to, you know, we we're going to dress in this particular way, and we were going to make this particular type of music that was hopefully uh, trying to aim for something a bit different and coming out of this kind of grimy industrial place that we where we lived, and and trying to trying to create. I guess it was kind of poppy, yes. um, positive music that we, we mostly tried to create. So whether that was the reality of our situation and what was hopeless, I think maybe we, we told ourselves that, but it might not necessarily have been true. Yes, it's always good to write a false narrative in life. Yeah. But it was interesting because before that, all that interesting chat, was that because um, the Smiths were my band, not mine exactly, but in the in the 80s, they were the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And indie pop for me was like 83 to 87. And during that period, that was the Smiths. There was all, you know, there was suddenly, because we'd had punk and post-punk, and obviously there was other things like the goth and new psychedelic psychedelia and the sort of new romantic and stuff like that and that Trevor Horn production. But the Smiths and all the bands that kind of gravitated around the, around the independent charts, I just thought were just amazing. But then when they broke up in 87, and then that kind of, oh, the party's over, and then ecstasy came in, and they just felt like a new scene and a new wave of 16 to 18-year-olds. It did feel a bit sort of like, okay, something's altered again, which now you look back and you kind of can see these kind of waves that will have no idea about current music. Um, but yeah, so when so with the Smiths, how did because you said you, you suddenly got into them in 88, so you were probably, I'm just loving here, going through your age here, aren't you? You were 18 then, weren't you? 17. 16, 17. So uh, uh, how did I get in? It was through through a friend who just looked impossibly cool. He kind of had the quiff. He had the Harrington jacket. He had the rolled up jeans with the white socks and the brown docks. And I thought that was really cool. And through that, I kind of gravitated to him. And he was into the Smiths. And that was obviously the look of your average Smiths fan. So yeah. that, I'm afraid vacuously I got into it on that look. And then... Uh, heard what difference does it make and that kind of hooked me and funnily enough it wasn't really that they got me playing guitar though although it's obviously amazing riffs um like that but yeah it was more the kind of the atmosphere of it all and i guess it's probably that slightly sad oh dear i've missed my opportunity i can never see them live um so he was releasing sweathead and last the international playboys and what have you but uh it was still this this miss that kind of romance of of the whole thing that that, that captured my imagination yeah. the whole package so suddenly the acdc rush moment just went didn't it you just had to put so that just long gone, long gone. <laughs> so hair metal Never, never floated my boat. No. <laughs> so, so you got the guitar right then? You, well, you got your guitar back, or removed it from your dad, and said, "No, yeah. this is going to be it." So, were you on a bit of a mission at the late eighties then to sort of get back into music? 
Yeah, but the being 89 and, and really the, the catalyst for getting into the guitar would have been the Stone Roses, pretty much because having been so obsessed with the, the Smiths and 89 and, uh, sorry, 87, 88 and into early 89, but knowing that I would never be able to see them live and knowing it was a thing of the past, uh, the Stone Roses came along and they were going to be my band, as you said, the Smiths were yours and, and the Stone Roses were really going to be mine because they were here, they were now, and uh, I went to see them play at the venue and I think it was, it would have been June, 89. Right. Uh, so the venue in Edinburgh and a, and a tiny little uh, venue and it was a kind of change, a life-changing moment then to see the band and feel the atmosphere. And also, it's interesting what you're saying about the the 16 to 18 year olds coming along and being into, uh, and obviously being a Smith fan and getting on a bus from Greenock to go to see the Stone Roses with other kind of indie kids, but the crossover with the kind of dangerous casuals, as we called them, who were the kind of football hooligan guys who you would pass in the town and be scared of and jump into a, a doorway. Suddenly we were all in this bus going to see the same band. And I always thought, that was the thing about the Stone Roses, which kind of, I don't know if it is appreciated now, is that they were kind of foppish, they were that kind of romantic, flowery shirts and poppy hair, but they somehow managed to cross over into the tough and rough mm. boys and girls as well being into it. So, But did, um, uh, did ecstasy sort of help calm down the casuals and the football hooligans? Maybe it's that kind of, that story, isn't there, and the narrative that, Suddenly, the Millwall fans were sort of in nightclubs, you know, hugging easy Chelsea fans and being uh-huh. lovely. And it was like, oh, this is a bit weird. I think they're on drugs. Okay. So, um, yes, that, that was kind of one of it. But I did just see that, that, that documentary on the casuals because, frankly, I'd never really come across this kind of look because they're not, they weren't into music. That was a strange thing. They were obsessed with this kind of be on board John McEnroe look, which is um, yeah. fascinating. Yeah. And <laughs> fighting. And fighting, yeah, they just, and it was like, well, no, music wasn't it, and not many women either. They did find one woman to talk to, and they're yeah, that's good. It's just basically a bloke thing uh-huh. with some kind of interest in fashion, really. So, um, and yeah, it's like, yeah, just fighting, really. So, yes, so they got into Stone Roses, but obviously ecstasy probably helped them along the way, didn't it? It did yeah. a bit, or at least their third eye or something. Um, yeah, so that was interesting. So was it John Squire then? Did he make you think, God, I've just seen him. I'm going to get my guitar back again. Yeah, very much so, yeah. Uh-huh. So I got I got the little Melita Spanish guitar off my dad. Wasn't really cutting the mustard, but fortunately I was working at this point, so I got myself my first electric guitar, which was an Axe, called an Axe, the brand was the Axe, and it was bought from the uh, the pages, the back pages of a national newspaper. I can't remember which one, so basically it was £60 for a, a really nasty guitar with a nasty little amp as well. That nice. Very, very hard to play, but play it I did, and I played it over and over and over again and became kind of obsessed with learning all those uh, all those Stone Roses songs. Um, well, so when did really you, when did you meet Andrew, Paul, Stewart? When did they come into your life? So Andrew and Paul, I would have met first. Uh, no, actually, that's not true. We all kind of met... The, the, Although Greenock um, was quite a small town, it's always had a fairly big music scene. And actually, my, my uncle's a bit of a local historian and a, and a mad jazz buff. And he's been kind of following jazz uh, 
since the, the 40s, 50s, and he, he has tales of all the, the different clubs that existed in Greenock, where you could go and see jazz, or you could see big band, or you could go and see rock and roll when it eventually came in. And it had a massive scene. I think it was because it was working in working town, there was money, and there was lots of young people. Obviously, the demographics totally different then, where you had uh, a much um, much higher amount of younger people. Right. But then you had so you had a lot of music always going on in Greenock, and that that is that continued up until quite recently. So there's always been. Uh, many more bands and much more people into music and and things going on. So there was a kind of scene. You were talking about the new psychedelia scene, yeah. and so the I was from Greenock, but most of these guys that I met up with are from Europe, which is another town right beside. It's kind of uh, maybe slightly more middle class, although you wouldn't say the boys in the band were middle class. But um, <laughs> they had a different. They had a completely different group of friends. Sorry. Um, and they were all into love. They were into uh, birds. the birds. They were into um, nuggets and all these mysterious psychedelic things that I hadn't heard of. But yes. we came together through a, a local nightclub in, in an old hotel, uh, which kind of uh, was run by who turned out to be our manager, Andrew McDermott or McD, as he's known. So he kind of pulled, pulled us together into various lineups of bands, uh, which finally crystallised as White Out with um, Paul and Andrew. And Stuart was in an earlier band with me, and we kind of kidnapped him into the band, probably when he was too young to know <laughs> what he was doing on any yes. number of things. But Yes, excellent. And, and the name of the band, is that because of the Drunkard State? Well, that's one explanation, of course, the... The one we tell the mums and dads is the it's the intense visual experience you get when you're in a snowstorm and you can't tell if fuck is up or down is down. I've got you. Yes. Because it's back depending on the context. Yes, who you're talking to, what event you're at. But um because it's kind of an interesting time in a way. I don't know if you saw it at the weekend, that sort of programme documentary on when Nirvana Nirvana came to the UK, which was kind of eighty-nine and then sort of again in sort of ninety-four. Because they'd been in the indie world and then that kind of the acid house clubby world with bands, you know, suddenly formed like Primal Scream, Soup, Dragons, and um, obviously the Stone Roses, Happy Mondays. But then you'd got, you know, the 4AD bands of like the Pixies and Throw Muses, mm -hmm. the Seattle grunge scene. So when you were forming in the early 90s, I mean, there were a lot of those kind of dreadful grunge bands. Dreadful grunge bands, you know, all the way the check shirts and the Jack yeah. Daniels and the hair and the sort of cut off jeans. And they're all singing about their problems about their stepfather in small town America. And um, uh -huh. and, they, and it's such a cliche, isn't it? When you see those clips now, they're just, you know, playing that part. I mean, did you feel like how you were going to fit into that? Because at that time, you we were definitely weren't looking for your band, were we? Probably not, but I, I don't think we, we weren't really looking at the, the bigger picture. And it was all, uh, certainly Paul, Paul the bass player, he was the kind of the musical director, I would say, of where the band were going. He and Andrew wrote the initial, uh, the initial songs that got us signed, but I think me coming into the band at that point, uh, I, they, they were much more into that kind of uh, post-punk uh, but psychedelic and so they were a wee bit more 
left field, whereas if I was coming in from the kind of Stone Roses and Neil Youngy, so it would be a bit more, not mainstreamy, but poppy perhaps. So I think that combination, they would probably never have got anywhere if they had stuck with the early Pink Floyd thing that they were kind of doing before I came in and changed things a little bit. But we weren't thinking about the the the, the scene at that time and us fitting into it. I don't think we were just No. Doing, Did you all, you know, so because you were one of the first bands to get signed to Silvertone, weren't you? Yeah, we were. I think we might have been the first. Maybe, no, they couldn't be the first. Well, there, there weren't many other bands on, on it when we signed. Uh, and that was maybe, what, a couple of years after the Stone Roses had, had went to Geffen. Yes. From so, so was it quite... I mean, did you have a bit of a bidding war at that stage for the band? There was. Uh, and, yeah, you look back and think about your, the decisions that you've made, but the, the main the main uh, suitors were Silvertone and Heavenly Records, and, and at one point uh, it was looking like Heavenly would have been um, the, best, the best option, but uh, for one reason or another, probably something to do with money, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was decided that we would go with with Silvertone, um, and I think they were offering quite quite different ideas of 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 how things would go. But obviously, through through Heavenly, we met a lot of amazing people. We, we played with St Etienne down in the Hacienda, and we met up with the Rocking Birds. So I don't know if you remember the Rocking Birds, who were also on Heavenly at the time. Yeah, it's a few uh, from Norwich, aren't they? Or one of them. Uh, Hackett, Andy Hackett, the guitar player is from Norwich, uh, who now plays with Edwin Collins. He's from Norwich. Was uh, there so another guy called Patrick who played slide guitar? That's right, Patrick, who also is, uh, plays with Edwin Collins, I think, as well. Um, yeah, so he looks David, good. Both of them, yeah. Yeah. Dave Singer and tambourine player. Yeah. So we met, we met all of them through the early days of, uh, of Heavenly and went on our first tour, UK tour, and, uh, and that was great. And, I'm sure that would have been that would have been great if we could have if we could have signed with Heavenly, but Silverton it was. And, um, At that stage, had because obviously the music scene has started to change again. Because I remember sort of obviously this is kind of the the John Major years and and sort of the rise of Britpop, and suddenly there was there was a great amount of enthusiasm that even I was getting excited by, mainly because of those Shine compilations, which seemed to be <laughs> quite an easy way to sort of know what was going on. But did you suddenly? going on the road and, and touring the country, did that feel like the band was certainly kind of major players? Well, it was, it was pretty interesting because, mainly because of the Heavenly Connection. Um, the first proper tour we did, the, the one we did with Rockin' Birds was maybe a four-date tour, but the, the first proper one we did was a co-headline tour with Oasis. And that was kind of set up at that point. It later became Blur and Oasis was obviously the, the Battle of Britpop. But yes. And and I think in Alan McGee and Jeff Barrett and Heavenly's Head, the initial battle was going to be between us and Oasis. And we kind of met, met up, we met up at that gig I was telling you about and uh, went out the Hacienda. So we met Oasis then. So that would have been kind of September 93, I think. Right. And we kind of met them a few times and... Uh, they came along to one of our gigs and played Shake and Make Up before we went on minus minus Noel. The rest of them went up, and uh, between 
Jeff and Alan, I think they organised the first tour that they did, which was a co-headline tour with Oasis. So that was in the spring of 94, Blimey. which was about 25 dates, which started off at that point, we were both being pretty heavily touted. We'd both been on the word yeah. um, and been in the face magazine. Uh, and yeah, things were looking pretty, pretty even at that point. So we started off the tour and by the end of the tour, it was pretty clear that there was only going to be one winner in that particular battle. So I can remember we played the Duchess of York in Leeds uh, towards, the end of the, towards the end of the tour and there were queues up and down the pavement and there was people crawling in back windows and none of them were coming to see us. <laughs> you know, it, was, it, was, it was a one-sided affair by then, four weeks later. So it was quite interesting to see that media oh. machine kicking in and... Yes, because there's, the, there's an amazing photographer called Kevin Cummins, isn't there? And he's brought mm-hmm. a book out on the 90s, and there were some incredible shots of Oasis in these tiny venues where the, you know, the audience are virtually on the stage and the band, you know, it's so intense. And he's such a good photographer. Yeah. Um, it really captures that moment. So were the gigs with Oasis a bit like that? You know, Because were there kind of like people... I remember certain headlines, Noel, no, Leon, Leon getting into fights. Was that the tour that there was kind of once or twice a few argy-bargy moments? Well, there was, there was always some kind, some kind of uh, danger or adventure or something going on with uh, those boys about. Yeah, we were, it was quite a juxtaposition as well because we had the big tour bus because we'd signed to Silvertone and we had, we had some tour support money. We got a big tour bus, which kind of, made it look as if we were being pop starry, but really it was just because we wanted to take all our friends on tour with us. So we had, uh, I, I think we employed six of our best friends to come out and be t-shirt sellers and uh, guitar loadies and what have you. And at the same time, Oasis were driving about in a transit van with, I think it was Bonehead who was the main driver, but they were kind of taking turns to drive and it was much more slapdash. And uh, yeah, they, they got in in more scrapes than we did because we had we had the comfort of the bus, but they, they were just, and they, obviously they were a wee bit more um, up for an adventure. Uh, but the <laughs> photographs probably do tell a pretty good story. But as I said, the, the start of the tour, they were well attended. By the end of the tour, it, it was absolute chaos. And it was the story that they tell. And I remember one night at the 100 Club, we played together at the 100 Club, which was a, an amazing night. And there was a, bottles being thrown and all that. It was quite. It was quite a hundred club punk moment. Um, yes, but it was great fun, and uh, it was mostly all good, clean fun, probably uh, yeah. more more than you would imagine. But well, definitely. I would imagine. I mean, when you're that age and everything's happening, so you didn't at, at that stage even meet Alan McGee, which was kind of that's amazing. I, no, I have never never met Alan McGee. No, I've I've heard that. I had. I remember one night being. Uh, the Verve played in Glasgow and we were there and Oasis were there as well and backstage and there was there was a chat of uh, McGee's adventures as well that were happening somewhere else at that moment but uh, I think I was the closest I ever got no, I never met him Oh my god, so close So then when you, with this excitement and obviously you must have given up your day job as well mustn't you at that stage? Yeah, that was long, long, I think it was <laughs> Yeah. So it was more lucrative than rock and roll, but you know. Yes, I know, in, in retrospect. So when you went to record the album, that was 94, wasn't it? Um, bite, bite It. Mm-hmm. 
How did that, um, what was the process like with that? Because it's kind of 12 tracks. Did you get them all recorded before going into the studio? Or we rehearsed? Basically, what we did, we, we got together at the start of 93. We rehearsed, we played a couple of gigs and went, we went in to do what we thought were demos in Park Lane Studios in Glasgow with um, a, an engineer called Kenny Parson. And they were the best recordings that we ever did. Um, we ended up then... You know what we should have done is released that as an album. That they were the they were the recordings that got us signed and that caused the the kind of bid and war, if you want to call it that. Uh, and they were the best the best things we did. I think just because we were so fresh and uh, excited at that point, and just uh, and loving going into this amazing studio with an amazing sound and, and with somebody who knew what he was doing and and made it sound great. And after that, we got signed and. You had you had a variety of different people with different ideas, and we ended up recording with lots of other lovely people and getting some good recordings out of it. But it it it, it then lost focus. We were very focused in those early days to get the deal, but after we got the deal, we lost focus a bit and waited another year and a half, I think, before we got an album out, which was composed of tracks from maybe three or four different studios which probably wasn't the best way to do it, and I don't think it served as well in the long run. You know, I think it would have been better to. Yes, because you you did some in Bark Studios, Battery Studios, yeah, and Park Lane Studio as well. Yeah. So was 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 there just kind of a lack of urgency about getting it done? It's hard to say. I think it was more a a a surfeit of opinions of other people outside the band, you know, which is I guess that's that's how people justify. But I'm not being, you know, it's not being, it's not a. It's not a criticism of anybody, but when every stage happened, somebody wanted to put their their mark on on the sound or on the band or they had their opinions of what could happen. So really, we should have we should have stayed strong and just um, with our manager and the four band members just got the album out. And yes, and you but you did a John you did a John Peel session, didn't you? We did do a John Peel session, which was uh, kind of amazing because. We played at Phoenix Festival in 94, I think it was. So that would have been the summer after the Oasis tour. And uh, I don't know if you remember the Phoenix Festival. Was that the um, one David Bowie played in or played at once? Not that year, not the year we were playing. I right. definitely remember that. Uh, he might have done another point. Um, yes. It was on an, an airfield somewhere in England. can't remember where. <laughs> uh, but it, was quite, it was quite big. But I went backstage afterwards and John Peel was sitting having his, his lunch and he said, oh, you're that guy from where you And I, my jaw hit the the deck because not, not in a month or Sunday did I think that we were the kind of band that John Peel would have been interested in. But he was a, a lovely bloke and we had, sat and had a chat and I went away and told our, um, would it have been a, a press guy? And he said, the only way you can get a session is to write him a letter and ask him. So I got his address and I wrote my letter and he sent me back a postcard from his village and uh, said, yeah, that'd be great, just get in touch with this person. So we got the session and it was really pretty amazing. Have, did you have the famous Dale Griffith who um, produced it? He was the Mott the Hoople drummer or did you have, yes, drummer, or did you have Paul Robinson? Paul Robinson, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It was an intense session. It was the most intense session ever because they were so 
unlike our other uh, attempts at recording, they were so focused on getting it all done in that day, four tracks, and uh, the the whole the whole process they went through was completely different from anything they'd done before. It was really loud, and uh, yeah, it was intense. It was intense, but it was great. They got, they got good results, and it was an interesting. An interesting day, yes. I know everyone loves that kind of one. Often people say that was our best kind of recording we ever did or something various, uh, almost like that. I always thought the Smiths Hatful of Hollow um, compilation was just brilliant. That, you know, the John Peel, Keith Jensen, you know, um, yeah, sessions, which were fantastic. So when you, when you were getting the album out in this kind of mid-90s period, how was the dynamic with the band at this stage? We were probably, uh, we had just come back from Japan and um, we had spent two weeks in Japan and a week in Thailand. So that was the, that was the high point of our whole experience. Uh, and it was just fantastic to be playing these big gigs in our own right with people who were really into music and going for it. And it was kind of emotional roller coaster from us. And I think when we come back, we came back from that, the album came out and we did a, a UK tour, which wasn't quite as successful. Uh, and then for one reason or another, Stuart left directly after that. So that, once again, that that was that dragged down the momentum. And uh, then six months later, we had recorded the demos for the second album and given them to Silvertone and uh, Andrew the Singer left at that point. So it all kind of fell to pieces uh, pretty quickly after we came back from Japan, probably around six months. So we went from the highest point to the lowest point. I mean, that is dramatic, actually. Did you see those kind of people leaving before they left, so to speak? No, not really. I wouldn't say no. No, it was uh, it was kind of understandable, I suppose, to an extent, but it was still a bit of a surprise and a shock, and it took us all, um, yeah, it took us by surprise, and we didn't really deal with the situation very well. You know, looking back, because you can always... Insight's a wonderful thing, but uh, we didn't get a ways of dealing with how people were feeling and, and the situation, perhaps. But Was there a bit uh, of frustration with the album? Because it didn't chart that highly, did it? No, I don't think there was. I mean, certainly it didn't chart highly at all, no. And and we, I think we always knew we were kind of disappointed with it, but we, were, we seemed to be happy with where we were going with the, the second album demos. I mean, we had completed the second album and pretty much given it to Silvertone. I think maybe they were a wee bit un underwhelmed with the next album uh, and kept harking back to the song, which was they always thought would break us, which was No Time. Uh, they, they thought that was our There She Goes. Yes. That, that was at least about 10 times before uh, in an attempt to try and make it successful. Uh, so Silverton did that with us. Maybe three or four times they released that uh, and it never quite. Um, set the hell on fire and they were looking for another one of those uh, so I think that, that maybe there was a bit of despair in there from some of the band members but um, yeah I guess people just you know people change and people's priorities change and yes did you um because you you became a third a third piece a three piece for the the second album didn't you with um yeah. obviously the the vocals being were they shared between you and Paul pretty much yeah uh-huh Yes. And I was always into being a guitar player, not a singer, really. So uh, nobody was particularly convinced by that, at least of all myself. But um, 
that's life. We gave it a bash, and we had we actually had by the time we finished, uh, we had got our very original drummer because Stuart wasn't actually our original drummer. Right. Uh, the guy uh, Mark Fairhurst Fudge, who played on the drums, and he came back. So we and then we got a, another Eric and on on keyboard. So our very our final lineup was probably the most fun and the most connected we ever were as a band. Uh, and we had some some nice moments with that, but yeah, it wasn't paying the bills. It, well, no, God. And did um did it was it the case that Silvertone dropped you after the second album? Yeah. Well, we didn't get as far as the second album with them. Uh, Silvertone dropped us after Andrew, the singer, left. They they weren't convinced anymore, so they dropped us. And our amazing manager, McDee, uh, pumped uh, his uh, energies into trying to get his, to creating his own record label and then recording the album and releasing it. Um, so he did. That was basically his his baby again after doing the same thing to get as a deal in the first place. So he was quite a guy. Yes. Um, indeed, yeah. And that, <clears throat> so did you then in sort of just before the millennium, the millennium bug or um, was it Y2, Y, I don't know, <clears throat> one of those things before 2000, did you all sit down and say, this is it, to quote Jim Morrison, the end? No, it was, it was quite a pivotal moment. We, as I was saying, we had that kind of lineup that we were loving uh, there was the four of us and they played a show and the chief exec of Food Records, whose name momentarily escapes me, you maybe know. Yes, I have done a, one of them. There was David Bath and the other one. The other one. <laughs> <laughs> he was at the show because we were friends with the Supernaturals at that point. Right. Uh, we had kind of, you know, we had, and he'd been Andy a Ross. Andy, Andy Ross. Ross. Yes, and he came. He came along to see us, uh, playing and nice and sleazy downstairs, and it was a great, great show. We played really well, and there was lots of folk getting into it. And Andy came up after the show and he said, "Oh, guys, I loved you. You've not got a deal just now, right? That's it. I'm going down to London on Monday, and uh, we're going to sign you." We thought, fantastic, for Dragons, right? So we've been, we've been up, we've been down, we've tried our best, and here we are. We've got it. Uh, we've finally got somebody who gets it, and. We never got that phone call, and uh, that was kind of the final nail in the coffin for us. I think after six years or whatever of trying, we thought, right, okay, time to do something else. A clean break, actually. Yeah. And did it feel quite a relief, or were you kind of like quite as as some people sometimes it's like, thank God that's over. Some people feel a bit empty. How did you feel after the band finished? A bit of both, I guess. I mean, I was disappointed that it hadn't happened, but it also I had been thinking about uh, trying to use my brain again in a maybe more academic fashion. So it allowed me then, I just um, knuckled down and went to university as, as quite an old guy <laughs> and managed to... The, the, the final gig we ever played abroad was in Spain. Uh, we had an amazing whistle stop one, one night uh, trip to Spain to play at the Purple, Wen Purple Weekend Mod Festival in Leon, and I just absolutely loved it. It's the first time I'd been to Spain, uh, mainland Spain, and seen the culture. And uh, I thought, right, I need to learn. And I'd always kind of learned languages when I'd been to Japan and Thailand and Germany, other places we'd played. So I thought, I'm going to go to university and learn Spanish and then go and live in Spain. So that's what I did, and it gave me the opportunity 
to do that with a clean conscience, I, I suppose, you know. Yes. Uh, so and it was a shame it didn't work out, but it allowed me to do other stuff. So. Yeah, absolutely. And was there much to tidy up with when a band breaks up, or is it just quite straightforward? I just wonder if there's things that need to be sorted out, or is it quite, yeah, that's that done. Any paperwork? What's the paperwork like of a band breaking up? I guess, uh, that's a very good question. I can't even really remember. It just kind of floated apart. When somebody moved to London. Um, some, we, we kind of stayed in the flat together for a little while longer and then it just kind of, you know, life, life took over and when you're not in each other's pockets trying to go, yeah. I just want to do, are there kind of issues to do with like equipment that you might have bought or is there kind of, just always curious, you know, you know, is there kind of like, oh yes, we need to pay this bill. Oh, someone owes us us some money. Yeah, that's fine. And then just like, have we finished? Yep, that's it. Or whether it's kind of less dramatic than that. Yeah, it's complicated. Uh, We basically, because we'd, we'd got money from Silvertone for the second album, because we'd given them it, but you only get you get half of that to record it, and then you get the other half when you've given them a product they're happy with. Uh-huh. Got to that stage. So we paid all our tax, uh, we paid all our wages out the first lot, hundred pounds a week, glamorous stuff. Yeah, uh, and then the plan was to pay the tax out of the second lot, which never materialised. So all the sixties boxes and seventies uh, Les Pauls and all the other lovely things that we had. Had to be sold to to go to the tax bill. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, and then it was done. It was all over. And it was done. Yeah. Yes, I know. Well, there was a guy I think who was in Mega City Four. He said it was a bit. They suddenly realised it's like God, we've got big bills to pay. You know, mm-hmm. usual stuff, and they had to sell all the equipment. And suddenly it was like no band, no equipment, and a complete you know change of lifestyle so um it's quite traumatic actually when that happens absolutely yeah so after university did you sort of form or did you sort of play music at all in in you know the next couple of decades because you did form another band didn't you eventually i've done bits and bobs i I played um in the year 2000 i played uh with uh tailgunner who which was made up of no Gallagher on drums and Owen Coyle, producer of Definitely Maybe, singing and playing guitar. Uh, so I went on a tour, not with no, no, didn't play drums for the tour, but um, we went on a tour that summer and I stayed, amazingly, I got to stay for six weeks with Manny because uh, the guy who he shared the flat with and there was a Stone Roses roadie was also an Oasis roadie who we'd met years before and stayed friends with so I stayed in his flat for six weeks while we prepared and then went on tour so I did that and had my own kind of thing called Eli uh, and then I most recently I've been playing with a guy called Joe McAlinden who's in a band called Superstar right yes uh, and he he and I met about 15 years ago in a little hotel in the middle of nowhere and in the highlands of Scotland and accidentally kicked up a friendship again. We had kind of met each other before, uh, back in the nineties. And so I played on a couple of records with him and kind of round in the circle a little bit. He 
the first album he recorded with Lyndon, it was James Waldborn, who's the guitar player of The Pretenders. Oh, uh, nice. Uh, so I was playing his parts. And then even weirder, uh, last summer I was playing with Kevin McDermott, who you might not have heard about. He's a bit more of a kind of mainstream Scottish guy from slightly earlier than in the 80s. Uh, he, that, he had the Kevin McDermott Orchestra and his brother played the drums for White Out at one point. So I played uh, with him a couple of years ago and was playing parts that Robbie McIntosh, the other Pretenders guitar player, had played. So once again, there's that Pretenders connection. Yes, you are gravitating towards the Pretenders, aren't you? It's excellent. I kind of like that, actually. And videos. Did you enjoy your experience of making videos, actually, for the band? Because they look very excitable. Yeah, we had fun. Uh, it was a bit strange uh, at first because obviously you go into these things without any real training and then suddenly you're having to mime and perform and put on makeup and wink at the camera and come up with uh, trying to make yourself look like a little gang. Uh, <laughs> that seemed to be the look that we were, we were going for or we were edged towards, but we had, we had great fun for the first video for No Time running about the streets of... Um, Oh, what's the part of London where our Silvertone Records in Battery Studio is? I can't even remember off the top of my head, but we were running about the streets being naughty boys in our uh, denim suits, double denim and long hair and yes. being cheeky. Uh, and yeah, working with Douglas was great. Oh, yes, um, you mentioned. Was that Jesus and the Mary Chain, Doug yeah, Douglas? Uh -huh. So yeah. he did the four, the four, uh, four videos for us and it was great working with him. Is it the case that um, now, do you keep in touch with any of the um, the members of the band? Or is it just, you just... That's Still like good friends with Paul. Our children have grown up together and we see each other a lot. Uh, and Fudge, our original drummer. Uh, Still keep in touch with him. We live together for a while as well. And he's in London based now, but he, he comes up quite a lot and we see each other. Uh, he's still he's still the one who's actively into music, and loves his uh, loves his electro releases he's singing into, mm. and Eric the other Eric I still see him. But the guys from the original the white out that you would know from the videos probably just Paul Andrew and Stuart. I don't really see very much. Um, no, it's gone, hasn't it? It's all over. It's a weird time, isn't it, being in a band? It must sometimes yeah. feel a bit surreal. Definitely. Uh, surreal at the time, surreal to look back on, but uh, thankful I got the, the, the opportunity to experience the, yes, the life. Yes, and, 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 and have a great story to tell, actually, which is always quite quite fantastic. And you survived that that sort of period, because some, some people don't, do they? So um, it's incredible, really. So look, if you could have told your 16 or 18-year-old self something who was starting out, is there something that you might have just said, oh, I'll just give you a few top, top tips from some wise, wise person? Okay, that's a good question. Uh... Be more confident, hang in there, and uh, yeah, be patient with people and try not to split up. 
That's the yes. main thing that I've always said to any band who's asked me for any advice is try not split up, try to stay friends, try to keep talking to each other. And I think um, if you can do that, it is quite amazing because there's not a lot of bands that can because there's not a lot of work situations because ultimately that's what it is. There's not a lot of work situations where you stay with the same people. Well, no, no, that's, the, I mean, yeah, when you put it like that and when I've sort of thought about it, it's like, of course, yes you're sort of always going to move in or thinking yeah. of moving. You don't stick with it. It's just, a way, you know, the band thing just always has a different thing because I've was never i never been in a band. So it just you just kind of glamorise this experience. And then, you know, oh, yeah, it's not so glamorous at all, is it? Because um, it's often the tricky second album or the third album and kind of having those kind of, you have that honeymoon phase, I guess, and then you have that kind of really, you, obviously Japan was your sort of moment. And then you have to sort of cope with the next next kind of phase. And I suppose, you know, with bands, you know, from anybody really, from, I don't know, I, I love people like Motorhead, and, you know, Lemmy, who just stuck with music all his life. And obviously mm-hmm. there were kind of some real highs and st- slow, you know, lows. And also just, you know, keeping it going, even when nobody is remotely interested, thinking, yeah. what is the point? But it's like, there's no plan B. And, you know, David Bowie, you know, his 60s work is pretty hit and miss and then his 80s work the same and 90s wasn't that great you know the, but there was kind of he just kind of somehow managed to keep it going and I think mm-hmm. yes even when he thought well that's a, that was a terrible album and didn't sell either so um yes it's quite a thing but I guess when when you're in a band and you're not just an individual it is a little bit different with those dynamics yeah but I think the thing is as well uh, obviously people left the band without really any idea of they hadn't had jobs. They didn't really realise how fortunate they were to be in this position to be in a band. And music is your life, and it is what you wake up in the morning and you go and do, and you get to tour and you get to meet people and you see different things, you know. And I, I think I knew that because I had worked, and uh, maybe that would have been good for other people to have. Yes. To well, it's like how, how always... privileged we were. Yeah, well, I've you know, I've I've always been impressed with the Rolling Stones because they did stick with it and realised that their solo projects were never going to make much money, and they just thought, mm, okay. And same with U2 and Simple Minds. I mean, they were the other bands who, in the eighties, seemed to sort of they must have had some real issues, but they kept going even mm-hmm. through it. Whereas the Smiths, you know, it was like so beautiful, but then it was like, oh yeah, it's gone, hasn't it? So there aren't many bands, but yeah, you're right. I think some people even when they want to split, think, oh, the alternative is going to be a terrible solo album, which will lose money, and then a job, or actually, I just let's just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> a bill yeah. like Bill Shankly, you know, he said, you know, you either work down the pits or you played football. And obviously that's, you know, not completely true, is it? But I suppose he, he realised that when you get a break, you don't faff it up by being a bit yeah. of a donor. So, um, yeah. yes. Did any wise words did any of the ones who split during that you know period did they go on to do any other sort of music or was that the end of their musical world i think that was it that was it i think i'm the only one who went on and did some some other bits and bobs paul might have played with uh, i paul played with the i want to say the breeze was a kind of mod band to pals of paul weller at one point i think right briefly i don't think there was much else happened in that now no there you go never mind look look eric thank you ever so much for this this has been amazing and if you want 
I can always send you the link and you can always use it. I don't know if you, do you have a, a whiteout page somewhere? There is, ran by a lovely guy called Gavtrin, who is a super fan from back in the day. So there's a Facebook whiteout page. A Facebook? Wow, look, that would be which amazing. Which is maybe occasionally updated. <laughs> it's well, it's interesting because it it's amazing how much stuff has been coming out in the last five years, you know. And I suppose talking to that photographer, Kevin Cummins, who did one on the 90s, but he did the Sex Pistols at Christmas Day um, 1976. And he said the book only came out last year. And it's, he said, you know, people weren't that interested. The same with his work with Joy Division. It was like no, no one's interested. But then decades later, and there's been all these documentaries and books that have come out about music from 30 or 40 years ago i think it does take a bit of time because i think when you when it's happening you take it for granted and then you get on with the rest of your life and mm -hmm. have to deal with that and then you sort of have a moment where you can look back and think oh not necessarily with rose tinted sunglasses but you can kind of appreciate some of the stuff and think because i've discovered things i missed the first time and actually it's much better than i you know it's like oh that's fantastic you know so it's been interesting, really. I do love my rock documentaries, so um, yee-haw for that. They've all been yeah. amazing, aren't they? Did you see the one on the Nightingales that came out recently, Robert Lloyd? No, I haven't seen that, no. Even if you don't like the band, it's still a great story. So um, there you I'm go. Yes. Well, look, I'll let you go, but thank you again for your time. This has been amazing, and um, I'll keep in touch. No bother. Thanks, David. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thanks, Eric. Take care. Bye-bye. Cheers now. Bye. And that was me in conversation with Eric Lindsay from Whiteout. A big thank you for that. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, if you're lucky. Um, C86 Show. Keep it positive. Otherwise, you know, don't bother. Also, all these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. True story. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.